This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Dance is one way of taking initiative to explore when the tears won't come or when they won't stop. When we have something that needs shaking loose or sweating out in high kicks, the wild mosh, the crowd surf. And dancing together is even better than dancing alone. One Oxford study of pain revealed that dancing in sync with a group made dancers able to bear more pain. Of course, they didn't control for people who find any kind of dancing in public painful. Dance is the body's jazz hands for the soul. Dance is God on the move. Dance is what we do when we have too many feelings and not enough words. Dance don't cost a thing, and it belongs to everybody. To dance is to let God move through us, reanimate us no matter what death dealers are after us. The perichoruses that began before everything. The music of the spheres that will play on long after we are gone. Dance is every one of you rising up from your own ashes. Every day, someone, somewhere, faces the powers of death. But then they make one little move. They put down the bottle. They call the therapist, the DV hotline, the immigration lawyer. They write their name on the application. If they are lying down, they get up. They join the dance. To dance is to laugh in the face of death and all its minions. As long as we can dance, they have not won, whoever they are. Valeria interviews Molly Basquette, the author of How to Begin When Your World is Ending, a spiritual field guide to joy despite everything. Molly Basquette is an author, progressive Christian pastor, mama, cancer survivor, and doomsday Pollyanna, who thinks we may yet avoid the total collapse of human civilization. A Boston native, she now lives in the Bay Area, where she hikes in the hills or marches in the streets, depending on the day. Her new book, How to Begin When Your World is Ending, is a treasury of post-traumatic resilience and joy. Meet Molly at mollybasket.com. Here's the interview with Molly Basket. In your own words, who is Molly Basquet? I am a mother, a pastor, a friend, an author, a child of God. Yes, it's interesting how it sounds very simple. <laughs> and I love <laughs> that. So when you say I'm a child of God, the fundamental question I often ask everyone who mentions God, the word God, is who is God? Where and what is he or she or it? That's a huge question that I'll try to answer simply. But since I'm a, a, a church pastor and 
you know, spend about spend hours every week thinking about this and trying to wrestle my thoughts into words, into sermons and other things to explain to people. I probably can't keep it too simple, but I will say that um, and we all have a different answer to this. Right. And I don't need other people's answer to be my answer. But um, I was as a child raised in a really unpredictable, chaotic and sometimes really unhealthy and unsafe environment. And God, for me, while not safety, was the one who made me, the one who companioned me, this sort of supernatural strength and presence who's, who often appeared, um, not not literally, not magically, but who was embodied um, by other human beings, by teachers, um, by other pastors, by babysitters, by people who kept me safe at a really challenging time, who helped me to see my own gifts and strength and possibilities um, God is love. You know, that that's what it says in the sacred texts I read in the New Testament. Um, also through the Hebrew scriptures, although there's a lot more to wade through there in the Bible, you know, I think we often, Christians often misread God as a God of violence, a God who um, hates the same people we do. And to me, if God is love, God is love for everyone. God calls God calls us into into being in this reality, in this earthly dimension, and God calls every one of us home at the end of our earthly days. Um, I'm not really sure of the particulars of that. I have my own, I've had my own kind of mystical experiences as a cancer survivor that gave me an awareness of what might come after this life. But one thing I know for sure is whether we are reincarnated or live in some other dimension, we are at home with God. Um, we're called to account for the harms we've caused in the, this earthly life, but we're not separated from God. It's impossible to be separated from that source of life and love. Mm. With that in mind about God not being separated from this, what's happening now, why do we need to feel separated? That's one of my biggest yeah. questions. Why is it necessary to go through all this? Although we're not separated, but why do we right. feel Correct. separated? Why do we feel separated? I love the way you phrase that. Why do we need to feel separated as if there's some agency? I think sometimes there is. I think, you know, sometimes to use the metaphor of God as parent and we're, we are God's children, um, there's a part of us that wants to separate ourselves. You know, when when we want to sort of double down on our naughtiness. You know, we, we've all felt that as children with our parents, where it's like, we know what the right thing is, but we don't want to do it. And so we just want to storm off, pretend our parent doesn't really love us and go our own way. Um, I think that's one kind of separation. And I think it's, that's a necessary step. You know, children need to separate from their parents to become who they are. And most of us, even those of us raised with, a really durable childhood faith will go through a time, a necessary time um, that we might call the dark night of the soul, or we might wrestle with atheism or agnosticism. We might pursue other religious paths that might turn out to be healthier and holier for us than the path we were raised in. But it can feel that we are separating ourselves from God for a while. And that's a chance to wrestle with our beliefs and to really figure out for ourselves what is enduring and true, what's what's childhood fantasy, um, what's maybe toxic or unhealthy. A lot of us are raised with really toxic or abusive religion. Um, 
some of us are raised in cults and it's a lot of work to kind of undo what that did. But I think there are other times when we feel separate from God and it's not our doing. It's because of pain or suffering. You know, Buddhists say um, pain is pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Um, you know, when we're when we're ill, um, folks with chronic or acute mental health crises can feel very separate from God, and it's not their fault. It's just a function of their brain chemistry, of the pain that they're in, of this um, really challenging time that it is almost impossible to see God in. And and a lot of us, you know, all over the world, we're in that time where, you know, could we be on the brink of uh, nuclear holocaust, of, you know, global nuclear warfare? Um, could everything, could life as we know it be about to end? And a lot of us live in that anxiety and it can feel hard to believe that God is present. Do you make any distinction between, you just mentioned briefly about religion, toxic religion and all that. So does it feel different for you, religion and spirituality? I know you are a progressive Christian pastor. I would love to to hear more from your perspective and also understand more what you do as a progressive Christian pastor. Sure, for sure. Um, spirituality and religion, I think they're related. I think they're, they're, there's a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram. Um, I think we're all spiritual beings by virtue of the fact that we have spirits. We have, we have bodies and we have spirits and they're not separate. They're, they're deeply embedded one, with one another. Um, as humans living earthly lives, embodied, incarnate, um, a lot of what we experience spiritually, we experience through these um, good bodies, these beautiful bodies, but these bodies that are very vulnerable. So we're all spiritual beings. We're all constantly navigating that, whether it's conscious or unconscious. Um, religion, I think, is a little more distinct. It's It literally means the ties that bind us together. I think of religion as something that's much more communal. Um, you know, the world's religion's for the most part, you do with other people. Um, I mean, I, I know that there are Christians who say, like, you once you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you're saved, that's it. Um, to me, there's no kind of before and after. It's sort of a continual becoming. I think that's the best way to express what a progressive Christianity looks like. You know, we keep growing. We keep um, working on our own humility. We don't think we have it all figured out. We don't think uh, we know the mind of God because honestly, who can know that? And we are constantly discovering new things about God. Um, Larry, you talk about that curiosity, and I think that's the best hallmark of a progressive faith. It's it's curious, it's humble, it's open. Um, you know there are things you don't know yet. It seeks to be more inclusive. It seeks to be more expansive. It's not tribal, or rather it is tribal in the sense that it can bind us in in healthy, glorious ways for each other's healing and growth, but it seeks to we seek to be one tribe, right? Like one mm. human tribe. It yeah. expands until everybody's in. Right. Oh, I love that, yeah. Molly. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds wonderful to me. That's what that means. Progressive, right? The name says that. Yeah. In in fact, if I could just add in my, my tradition, which is the United Church of Christ. One of our symbols, one of our modern symbols is is not just the cross, but the comma. Um, there's a lovely phrase from a comedian, Gracie Allen, who said, never put a period where God has put a comma because God is still speaking. 
And so this idea that God has more to say to us, that it isn't just all locked up in the Bible or the Quran or or any other religious text, but God's revelations ongoing. Wow. So you wrote the book, How to Begin When Your World is Ending, a spiritual field guide to joy despite everything. So what is not to love about that? (laughs) (laughs) How do we learn to stay in touch, connected to the divine, to God, when we are facing major challenges in life as you have? Yeah, Um, it's hard. You know, we don't all suffer equally. Um, Some of us are born into enormous privilege or enormous gifts or sort of natural resiliency. You know, I think about some of the things I went through as a kid, which, you know, I'm a white female American. So um, how bad could it have been compared to lots of people in the, in the, in the world? Um, But, you know, I, one thing we know about childhood trauma is if you have loving adults who are present consistently over time, um, that can really help you metabolize the trauma. And I think even if you haven't, there are ways when you start to reach adulthood, when your brain, when your prefrontal cortex fully forms, you know, when you start to bring some of that higher order thinking that opens up some choices, right? Um, I quote Viktor Frankl in my book. Um, he, he's a Holocaust survivor. And he said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power to choose. And in our choice lies our growth and our freedom. So he's not saying we all have the same choices. We absolutely don't. Some of us are very limited by our country of origin, by our economic level, by our gender, by our sexual orientation, you know, gender identity, so race, so many things. Um, uh, and the way the world responds to those things, I should say, you know, there's nothing wrong with being gay. It's how the world responds to you being gay. Um, but we all have some some little space, some little open space that God is inviting us to move into. And and a dear friend of mine who has suffered from depression most of her adult life um, has offered this. She said, even when you feel paralyzed and you feel like you can't do anything, you know, and someone's saying to you, just like, just go for a walk, you know, as if it's that easy for someone who's like pinned to the bed by depression, you can do one little thing. You can change one little thing. If you're lying down, sit up. If you're sitting up, stand up. If you're standing up and you're exhausted, lie down. If you're inside, go outside. If you're outside, go inside. If you're, if, you know, eat a little something, drink a glass of water. Um, I'm a huge fan of movement. Um, we spoke before we started recording about friends of mine who have founded a global movement called Interplay, um, which unlocks the wisdom of the body. And they're all about spirit, the spirituality of movement and how dancing, shaking, whooping, weeping can help get out what's locked up inside of us and shift, just make a small enough shift that we're not as stuck as we were before. Wow, I love that. That's another powerful insight and message in your book that really, really caught my attention. You actually use the word dance. So this movement 
when you call it a dance, it becomes to me, it's almost like a visualize this uh, graceful movement, divine movement, really, uh, between all things, everything yeah. moving, feelings. Yeah. Just let it move, let it pass through you. Yeah, yeah. There's a beautiful idea in my Christian tradition of the Trinity, and um, that's God the Creator, Jesus the Child, and the Holy Spirit, which is kind of the, the energy that animates it all. And there are three distinct ways of, of, of God. There's three distinct embodiments of God, but they're connected and they're, and they're in a dance. It's like a circle dance. And um, there's a fancy Greek word called perichoresis. You know, they're they're dancing around together. And I love that image of God. Mm, yeah, it, it resonates to me. That's what I see too when I think about that. That's interesting. The circle and everything's just interconnected and it's just this amazing yeah. dance. And it's, a, and it's a circle that's open, right? Like in that circle, um, it's not tight. The hands, there's a hand, there are hands open for you to join that dance, right? Mm, and that's yeah. that invitation. <laughs> yeah. I think about the being open to life. That makes sense. An open heart, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. the door to um, in and out of whatever situation we are in. Amen. Yeah. You know what comes to me a lot, Molly, is when I'm going through any kind of challenging situation, it really, really helps to know. It's not even to think, but to know that everything is passing. It, it again goes back to that dance, that movement. Nothing really stays the same, although it feels like there's something here that is always the same, which we might call the energy of the divine. That's oh God, the, God's presence is always here. And I feel it. I know it is. Yeah. But at the yeah. same time, with everything else, it's just coming and going, just passing, moving. Right. Absolutely. Anything that's alive is changing. The only things that don't change are dead things. Right. right. <laughs> yes. And, and sometimes that change is, is very hard to see, right? It's, it's, you know, for our pacing, for our, we want things to, to change faster because it hurts. Um, but you're right with patience, thing, everything will change. You know, if, if things are hard, they will get better. I say this to new parents all the time. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're really like baby's not sleeping, baby's crying all, you know, all night, all day, everyone's at their wit's end, everyone's exhausted. Um, this is not going to last. And likewise, if things are good, you know, that's, that's not going to last. So appreciate it. I mean, it, again, life, you know, life, life is a sign curve, you know, life is a roller coaster. Um, so how do we learn to enjoy the ride as much as possible? Yes. <laughs> With that grounded in that presence, the divine presence, I go back to it because it's the only thing that makes sense. Yeah. From the big picture, really looking from the big picture, broader picture of life, that really is the only thing that so many things you don't make sense, but that makes sense. That And and, and in a way, like sometimes it doesn't make sense, but embrace that. Like a lot of the book is about my cancer story, my, my going through cancer, um, facing my own mortality and vulnerability, facing the idea that I might orphan my young children. They were very young when I had cancer um, and finding a way to surrender, you know, just to be in that. And some of my hardest days in chemo, the chemo was honestly much harder than the cancer itself. I would just 
take to my bed, which was very unusual for me. I'm a very high energy, busy, productive person. You know, like lots of us, we sort of pride ourselves on our productivity. And I would, I couldn't do anything. I would just have to get in bed. And in some of those moments, not all of them, because God's not a trained dog, you know, God doesn't come at our bidding. But in, in lots of those moments when I was at my most frail and weak and discouraged, something would overtake me. It was, it was a very somatic feeling. It was very like spiritual, but embodied feeling of like carbonation all through my body. And it was so comforting. It was God wordlessly letting me know this all will be well. You know, there's a, a mystic um, from medieval times who says all will be well all will be well, all manner of things will yeah. be well. I can only imagine, of course, what you went through. And I'm sorry for you going through all that, Molly. Yeah. And that was not the only thing Thank I know. You. you went through a lot of challenges. And I often wonder, and I also ask the question here, is that what it takes for us to learn to embody love and, and trust again, the divine or God, or we can learn without this harsh lessons? I think for some of us, you know, I think children learn very naturally and easily. Um, They are very naturally curious and open to the world. I think for a lot of us, as we get older, we get more rigid. Um, We rely on ego too much to nourish us. And of course, ego is like junk food, you know, it's not soul food. So true. Um, And, you know, I say all the time to my people, the people in my church. And um, I said in the book that God doesn't send the disaster. I really don't think God visits, you know, cancer or tsunamis or, you know, what kind of God would do that? But these things happen because of, because of the way the world is constructed. And when they do happen, um, God might use the disaster to break us open, to make us more interdependent, um, to help us understand that our wealth our privilege, our power will not protect us. You know, we can make plan B through plan Z if we have a certain amount of wealth and power, but, you know, we're all human. We're all going to die. Um, and those disasters are sometimes the way that God's that God gets through to us. I, I like to say God, God breaks and enters our hearts. You know, that thief, that thief in the night. It's really true, though, because it has been my experience, personal experience, going through a lot of challenges and suffering to finally see some of the truth. And I love the way you talked earlier about not having that period there because the communication, it's ongoing, mm-hmm. the lessons and the insights that we gain. It's just incredibly magical to me, this experience yeah. here, because as long as, as we are open, it's always kind of um, yeah. exciting, but in the sense of, uh, I call it meaningful fun <laughs> to be, yeah. right? Yeah. To experience yeah. this from that perspective. <laughs> well, and think too about, you know, we, we like to put good and bad into binaries and put, you know, God, God and Satan or, you know, evil evil and good into binaries but and there's a way in which we say like darkness is bad you know like monsters lurk in the dark and and the dark a lot of us are scared of the dark but god is you know it's right there in the very beginning of the jewish and christian sacred text in genesis you know god is darkness and light it like god is in all of it 
um, they're distinct embodiments and they overlap, of course, at dawn and dusk. And and I love your idea of playing, like, you know, playing as a kid with other kids in the neighborhood after dark was very exciting. You know, um, humans mostly make love in darkness. You know, there's a wonder in that. So how can we embrace the playful amidst and within the darkness? I mean, that's a profound message. And reminder for all of us, Molly, to play more, to be more open to life, yes. curious, yes. not being mm-hmm. afraid to say, no, I don't know. <laughs> and it's okay yeah. not to know for now, because that opens the door for knowledge right. to come in. And and to make jokes in hard times. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> for like, sure. <laughs> you know, gallows humor can really, like, humor is a great release from... When, when we're too serious, like seriousness is deadliness, right? It's healing. I know. Laughter. Yes. I agree. Oh, my God. A billion times. A trillion times. <laughs> yes. Yeah. To that sense of humor. And you have that. I mentioned that earlier off record. You write beautifully. It's just very creative. There's so much flow to in it. It's uh, You're a beautiful writer. Really, really, truly much. beautiful. And and talented, of course. (laughs) So I would love to hear more, Molly, about the uh, the mystical experiences you had Mm -hmm. throughout the cancer treatment, if you don't mind, of course. I don't mind. Read the book. Oh, ah, yeah, it right. The one (laughs) give everything. Read the book. You know, it's almost like. um, I mean. When you tell people your dreams, it's very <laughs> profound to you and very boring to other people, right? You know, <laughs> yes, and mystical experiences can be kind of the same way. I mean, it's 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 never going to translate for other people as much. But, um, you know, for someone who like I actually consider myself fairly pragmatic. You know, I I like to I like to do rather than be. I like you know I like activity. I like to do justice in the world. To me, my faith is empty if I'm not making, if I'm not helping relieve other people's suffering, if I'm not helping people get free. Um, at the same time, you know, I'm continually surprised by a God who is not sort of as that material and, and pragmatic, who basically like sort of pins me to the bed and sends me a dream or has a conversation with me like out of nowhere when I'm driving around. And it's so clear that it's God because it's a much kinder voice than I would ever use with myself. And also a really a hard ass, like a tough voice. Um, it's that tough love, you know, that's not going to let me, um, you know, play small to the world or, or take refuge in my ego. Um, and that's going to challenge, you know, my beliefs, my, my small self, my small beliefs. Um, I won't, I want, I, I'll just give a little hint, but the way they found my cancer was very odd. Um, I had, I was completely asymptomatic. Um, they found it in my lung. It's a cancer that teenage boys usually get in their femurs or pelvis. And they found a golf ball sized tumor in my lung as a 39 year old mom. Um, I did have, um, I did have a herniated disc in my lower back and I was, I'd lived with that pain that was like really intense and and really made it very hard to live my life and do my job Um, and decided after six months to go in for surgery. And when I went in for pre-surgical testing, this was right before Holy Week, which is a very big deal for pastors. It's like nine services in seven days and just runs us ragged. Um, I, one of the tests they did, they blood tests and, you know, 
things to make sure you're healthy enough for surgery. They did a chest x-ray, even though I was too young to really need that. It's mostly for older folks when they get, um, when they get, um, when, cause they might get pneumonia when they're on the table. The night before I went in for this chest x-ray, I had a dream that I, I woke up from, it was so vivid. I said to myself, that was not a dream. I wrote the whole thing down, which I never do. Um, cause I had a busy day that day and I normally don't write my dreams down. Anyhow, I'm not much of a dream journaler. I wrote the whole thing down because I wanted it, I wanted it recorded for some reason. And the dream was kind of a near-death experience within the dream in which I came to understand that what is beyond this life is peace and freedom from suffering, and it's deeply good. And then they found um, my tumor on the chest x-ray and started this crazy cancer journey Within two weeks, my back pain was completely gone without surgery. It had been pointing to it. It was a it was a warning flare. It was a pay attention to your body sign, and that with the dream let me know that whatever happened, whether I lived or died from this cancer, um, everything was going to be all right. It would be hard. It would be hard to leave too soon. You know, to leave this party. It would be hard to leave my children. Um, God told me at another point. You know, it would be hard for my kids, but they would be okay because we, um, my husband and I had provided for them a, a really deep, rich community of people who loved them so much that they would get through this, um, which was hard for me to hear. Like, I wanted God to say, no, they need their mom and I'm keeping you right there. But that's not what God said. Um, so that kind of matrix or that that um, fabric of experiences really held me through that very difficult time. How amazing, Molly, to hear that. It's a testament of that for all of us, just to be reminded once again that we are not alone, even when it feels like we are, Mm -hmm. we are not. For me, these days has been, I guess, the practice or the strengthening of trust, because that it seems like it takes some, some time or work to establish that trust in that presence. Mm-hmm. I noticed that. Mm-hmm. So the work mm-hmm. you do with mm-hmm. communities, that makes a lot of sense because you are um, establishing that trust with the divine. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some people, I think, just organically have more of a sense of the presence of God in their lives. Um, and some people don't, despite like really working at it and really setting themselves in healthy religious communities. I talk about um, someone like that in the book. Her name's Liz. She's a member of my old church, and you know, as 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 hard as, as good a doobie, as good as sort of a church lady as there ever was, but um, couldn't feel the presence of God. But she just keeps showing up for it, and how she experiences God is in other human beings who show up in a loving way for her, um, and whom she shows up for. You know, and and that's not. I don't think that's a less lesser experience you know um there's a lot of maybe surprisingly there's quite a lot of atheists and agnostics in my current church maybe that's not surprising i I live in the bay area in california we're very progressive and not actually that religious very spiritual and not too religious Um, but people say to me constantly i'm here for the community and that is how they experience the divine embodied in other people doing good works, showing up for them, 
um, being worthy of their trust. Yeah, wow. That's another powerful insight, Molly. I'm sure I heard it before, but I have I had forgotten about it, actually, because I am part of um, this huge community, too. And it almost feels yeah. like this. it's so natural to me to be part of people's lives and do this work. But the way you speak just resonates so true, especially when I asked the question about God and you mentioned your own experience about having other people be that representation of love, of unconditional mm -hmm, love. Mm -hmm. And, ah, and, and I, love I mean that because can I unpack that a little bit? Because when I say that, you know, love can sound so, you know, squishy and mm, yeah. sort of wrapped <laughs> in tissue paper flowers, but I mean it very <laughs> pragmatically. Again, like how do we practice love as a verb? Like how do we love as a verb? How do we um, show up for each other when it's not convenient? Um, bringing people soup when they're sick, driving people home from the hospital who don't have, you know, extended family to do that for them. Um, how we showed up for each other during the pandemic. A lot of folks lived alone and were isolating alone and we know the harm that does to people when they're too isolated. So um, people would come and sit on their porches with them. People would um, we would we had Zoom Zoom coffee hour every week where we would share really deeply about our lives and vulnerably like trust each other with our our stories and our wounds. Um, how do we show up for people even when we don't necessarily like them? How do we love them even when we don't like them? <laughs> Because whenever you get humans together, there's going to be challenge and there's going to be conflict. How do you work through the conflict? How do you stay with it for the grace that will follow if you're willing to do the work? And how are you, will you be willing to be changed yourself? I mean, that, that I think is the blessing of healthy religious communities is um, they're not cults of personality that put some people up on pedestals and keep everyone else down below that ask us to make sacrifices that are unhealthy or unsafe. Um, but they do ask us to, to, they do ask us to work, to do our own work, to work on ourselves um, to be good active listeners, to love our enemies or love the people who are different from us. That's what Jesus asked us to do. And, you know, having been a Christian, or I should say trying to be a Christian most of my life, I'm 52 years old. Um, I've been so, I'm, I know, you know, I preached this recently. I don't go to church because I'm a good person. I go to church because I want to be a better person than I am. Mm. Yes, that's another powerful message. <laughs> I love your wisdom and that divine wisdom, of course. You just made me think about the ways I try to kind of do exactly that. Love the ones who are, I would say, um, and they're not bad people or anything like that. They just, they don't know yet. They don't know love yet. They have not let mm -hmm. love come through. So because of the traumas and all the blockages, and I can see that. What I often do, it I just lit a, a candle. I just light a candle for them. Um, when I think about mm -hmm. them and mm -hmm. I know their mind is disturbed, they're not at peace. So that's why mm -hmm. I do a prayer. I just ask God, the universe, the divine, to just show them the way and to illuminate yeah. their lives. And that's my way of doing it. For people that are distant, of course, close to me, it's easier. <laughs> yeah. Much easier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Uh, let's see. So I want to mention again the title of your book. So it's How to Begin When Your World is Ending, A Spiritual Field Guide to Joy Despite Everything. That will be released on Amazon November 15th. So I forgot to mention that earlier. And since I mentioned the title of the book again, I would like you to ask an open question. What was or is the main intention of writing your book, of having this book in the world, Molly? Um, two things. I had a story that I had to get out. You know, the, the way I, I, I kind of write my way to meaning, the way I figure out what things mean is to write about them. Um, that's the way I kind of surface and heal myself. So I, I did it for me. Um, and I did it because I've walked with so many people. There's a lot of stories in the book of people I've walked with through some really hard things and seen them become transformed, um, see them move through trauma and through resilience and find joy again and find a new life on the other side of really hard and horrible things. And um, I wanted to put their stories into the service of others who may be going through similar or different hard things to give them hope to light their path a little bit so that they don't feel so alone. There is um, a passage in your book that caught my attention to chapter 10. God does not have a plan, but God has a dream. Mm -hmm. And then I was reading through it and I found a passage that's very clear. It's about the dream uh, that God has. So it reads, I think it was somebody who said that. Hopefully I'm quoting it correctly. Tassie, I think her name is. I think. But maybe you wrote that too. My sister Tess. Oh yeah, Tess. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah. she writes, God has a dream of a world where love rules, where everyone belongs, where we are more than the sum of our parts because of how we've decided to fit everyone in and the decisions we have made to love. It says a lot more than that, of course, uh, in that chapter. But that this passage specifically caught my attention. It goes back to love. So when mm -hmm. I think about this life, that's exactly what I think of. But not love in the sense that, yeah, they're fluffy. <laughs> the, the, the way you say it's kind of funny because yeah. I love your sense of humor. <laughs> I had the flowery <laughs> love. <laughs> but it's a lot more profound than that. To me, it comes from that expression of love that we call love. It comes from the sense of peace that's given by knowing the truth, that we are not only mm. humans here in the body, physical body with the conditioned minds, that we are spirits. That's the peace. That gives me peace and, and liberation and freedom. Makes me feel mm. free, although I know mm -hmm. there's a lot of conditions mm -hmm. here. And then the expression of what we call love, it's easier, it's so much easier to manifest in this reality because I'm mm -hmm. coming from a place of, of that trust and that translates, becomes peace um, from yeah. trusting the divine. Yeah, so it's easy to pass that on and then we call it love, but it's really like the peace that's within, that trust, that spiritual knowledge that's being manifested, which it's easier to be kind when we are in that space. So would you like to um, mm -hmm. add to it, Molly? To, um, I'm not sure if you were able to hear everything. Sure. But. Yeah, I did. Um, so I call the chapter God doesn't have a plan, but God has a dream because I think there's some toxic theology. I don't want to say toxic because I don't want to be mean. I, I think sometimes when someone you love or care about is going through something hard, you try to come, we try to comfort folks by saying, 
God has a plan, you know, like it's all going to turn out all right. But we know that's not true. We know that four-year-olds die of cancer. We know that, you know, innocent civilians get killed in wartime. We know that people fleeing violence in their home country, you know, get incarcerated at borders or, you know, um, sex trafficked or anything trafficked. We know that really bad things happen. So it's unfair to say God has a plan. Um, But I do think God has a dream. And when we bring, again, that curiosity, when we can be curious about what that dream is and what God's dream for our lives might require us to give up or pursue or how it might ask us to expand, um, I think that is when we can rest in that trust and the love that you're speaking of. Like almost like we're, we're, we're not, we're not passive. Uh, maybe a metaphor is, you know, we're floating on a river or we're, we're on a swift river in a boat, but we have to do some paddling <laughs> to avoid the rocks, you know, to avoid killing ourselves and all the other people in the boat. So there's a river and we can't change the course of the river necessarily, but we have some agency over how that trip down the river goes. Um, yeah, that's very clear. I love your clarity. And of course, divine wisdom just shows up <laughs> so naturally to you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Molly, for being you, for being open to life. Thank you. Well, I'm just as God made me. Uh, yes, <laughs> beautifully. So we're almost at the end. Before I ask you my final questions, would you like to add anything that you left unsaid or read a passage in your book? Oh, gosh. Um, can I find a passage really quick? Yeah. yeah. You know, I just opened to chapter nine, which is called Life is Love School. Can I read the first couple paragraphs? Okay. Um, Actually, I'll just read one paragraph. Author and mystic Father Richard Rohr calls life love school. We're put here not to work and prove our value to the earthly enterprise, as I sometimes imagine, nor to build masterpieces that will outlive us, as I also sometimes imagine, nor to sit on the couch and watch bad TV and eat cheese puffs, as I also sometimes imagine. The main reason we are here, I've decided after five decades of fieldwork, is to learn how to love. Wow, you just want to hear more. <laughs> so buy the book, as you said. <laughs> yeah, I love the way you write. It's fun, it's profound, it's insightful, it's tender, it's just beautiful. Thank you. Thank you again for the gift. Thank you so much for your support and thank you for all your work in the world, bringing people into the deepest part of themselves and creation and helping them do their work and connect in a loving way. I really have this vision that we're all here to do this type of work (laughs) or this engage in this type of actions. We can become our own healers, our own teachers. I really have Mm. this vision. Um, Who knows? Maybe one day will become true. Maybe it's already happening. It is, right, Molly? I really, yeah, that's Mm -hmm, something mm -hmm. that's I love to hear that, actually. It's already happening. And it sometimes doesn't feel like it, but it is. Mm-mm. At this time, what is the world's greatest need from your perspective? Mm. Um, absolutely, we need to love the earth we're on better because global climate chaos is real. It's caused by humans. And we won't have a chance to love each other um, anymore if we don't take care of the earth before it's too late. 
Um, so true. And it's very sad to see that we humans have not done a great job at it, <laughs> taking care of our no. own environment. That is, um, it's sad, right, to see the trash everywhere. And it doesn't make sense, but we'll get there. As you said, <laughs> we are waking up. It's the big systems, you know, that kind of use up all the Earth's resources. And I, you know, I hold um, developed countries most responsible, like the U.S., you know, who kind of use the most and abuse the most. So we have, it's it's something we have to address not on an individual basis, although it helps, you know, picking up litter, doing our part. But we really have to ask the, the great powers to answer. Um, and change the systems at the core. So it takes time, and um, that's when where patience really plays a, a, a huge role. Just um, doing the work that we have to do, and then mm. just being patient with those who yet have not understood this message, or wholly impatient. Ah, yes, I like that better. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> Another question for you, the, the last question before the technical one, is what do you love most about being in the human body? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, ice cream is what comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, gosh, just all of it, just like touch, you know, snuggles, hugs. Um, the feeling of water on skin, um, especially skinny dipping, um, just sen- just the beauty of sensation, flavor. Um, I you know, I I respect people who don't believe in God. I, I have nothing against that, but I look at how beautiful the world is, and it's hard not to believe in God for me. Like. The world could be much more utilitarian, but it's so beautiful. And the way we get to interact with it is so amazing for us in these bodies. Mm, yes. Uh, beautifully said. The orgasm. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the human so orgasm that is invented by God. Like what's what's better than that? I ask you. Right. That's so true. You, Molly. you only get to have. Yeah. You only get to have those if you have a body. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. What a out of the box answer. That is, um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I love how fun you are. Meaningful fun you hope are. Uh, hope it's okay if that was like a little PG-13 answer. No, it's part of the human experience and we all know that. So no it denial is. here, yeah. right? Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much, Molly. You're such a beautiful person, open-hearted. I love how you open to spread this message in, in the most graceful way, in true, authentic way, and in vulnerable way. It touched the heart. It opens it. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. witness that. I live for these things. So thank you so much for being you. Thank you so much for having me on. And before we say goodbye for today, where can we find more information about your work, your book and books, services, and future projects? Yes, um, you can find everything at my website, mollybasquette.com, B-A-S-K-E-T-T-E. Um, all my books, you can subscribe to my newsletter and get news in your email inbox, um, all that and more. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon, Molly. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Molly Basquette and her work, please visit mollybasquette.com. Ooh.
learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.